welcome to another episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast with me, your host, Andrea Miller. My guest today is a woman who describes herself as a creative soul and midwife for liberation. Edelette McVicker was born and raised in South Africa during the apartheid era and spent half of her life living in a system created to benefit her white body. As she says, her very personhood was formed in one of the most extreme racist political systems in history. The system of apartheid created by her ancestors was meant to benefit her and her whiteness. But as she shares, what they did not account for was that I also needed a soul. In this conversation, we talk about Edelette's journey out of whiteness, and she shares it in her new book, Recovering Racist, Dismantling White Supremacy and Reclaiming Our Humanity. She shares how she spent so much of her life trying to prove she was a good white person and not racist only to finally realize how the years of apartheid have permeated her soul and very being. As she began peeling back her layers of whiteness and learning from BIPOC voices, she finally acknowledged the ugly truth and quit hiding from her story after hearing these words from Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas. The only thing white people can ever be are recovering races. Listen in on this powerful conversation where Edelette McVicker shares her journey of liberation and healing. Edelette, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I think we're ready to get started on our conversation. Great, let's do it. So Edelette, you are, you're an author, you are a speaker, you are, you're a passionate woman about a lot of issues, including justice and equality. And today we're going to talk about um, your latest project and your story. But before we do that, I would like you to just give a brief introduction to my listeners of where you are in the world, who you live with, kind of your day-to-day life, just for like a real picture of this this woman. Okay. Wow. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks for having me. Um, so today I'm sitting in the basement of our home and this is my office studio sacred space. Um, and it's in Surrey, British Columbia, and it's the unceded territories of the Kwantlen, the Semiamu and the Stolo peoples. And so I'm an immigrant settler in the land that's known as Canada. All right. And so I've been here 22 plus years and I come here via two other continents. Um, I was born and raised in South Africa as my story which we're going to be delving into my story there and then when I was in my 20s I moved to Taiwan and I was there for four and a half years and then uh, moved to Canada when I fell in love with a bartender Uh, we have three teenagers and two dogs and a fairly busy sport life soccer hockey all the things and uh, we also have a restaurant and so um, when (laughs) yeah a lot of our life is spent around serving others but that's mostly Scott my husband doing that stuff and even all three kids work there now Um, but mostly that's their thing but that's our lives right just we love to serve others and be like sit around the table and good food and that kind of thing yeah how old are your three teenagers well, it changes every year. So I've, you know, I have two to keep track of two teenagers. So I was just curious the age of the scores, but right. They change. Yeah. On a split. So I know. Right. So 18, 17 and 15 right now. Okay. Okay. So you yes. have your hands full. Mine are two girls, yeah. 13 and 19. So I have a big, okay. Big okay. Gap there, but, and two is easier gap, to yeah. keep track of the three, but um, yeah, they keep you busy. Don't they? Yeah. And I love it. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's a fun, fun age. Okay. So let's shift gears. And like I told you when we were chatting before, I usually dive right into guests sharing their origin story as far back as they want to go. But before we do that, I just want to kind of briefly touch on something that we've discussed um, about your book. So the title of your book is called Recovering Racist, Dismantling White Supremacy and Reclaiming Our Humanity. So a little backstory on that. I remember getting your book from your publisher agent. I'm not sure who sends them out. And I remember looking at it like, huh, well, white people are not supposed to write, (laughs) right? From my learning and training, or not training, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. learning the last several years, that white people really shouldn't be writing books about racism and profiting off of that. So Mm -hmm. I just, I literally like put your book to the bottom of the shelf. So that sounds like too much council culture, maybe, I don't know, but that is just what was in my mind. And then I would have done the same. (laughs) Okay. You told me that. And I'm like, okay, good. I feel better. So then you reached out to me and just asked, you know, if I had wanted a copy of your book, you didn't know I had one. And I was like, you know, I do, but I was honest and pretty much told you, like, I just don't, 
know about white women writing about anti-racism, white people, not just white women. Mm-hmm. And you told me where your profits went to. Repair and restitution. So 30% to South Africa, right? Okay. And 30% right here in Canada. Um, the first check already went to the indigenous, uh, to the uh, residential school survivor society. Okay. Because we have this history of residential schools in Canada, right? And so right. that when I was asking indigenous friends, they were like, this yeah. is where it needs to go. They're doing such beautiful work. And then 30% to South Africa. And now the last check, we still have to, I ask people, I ask, I, I do this in community and we ask, I mean, it's, it's kind of a beautiful process too right and so this unfolding process the last 30 percent will go to the u.s for repair okay. and restitution okay. um i've just learned i've just i've just received so much out of the u.s for like authors thinkers mm-hmm. activists um language i feel like and as i've delved into the story i realized how much our the, the story of racism is so interconnected yes right because yeah. we're talking about colonization we're talking about power right um resources so yeah so that's where it's going and it's an unfolding story right which is so huge so when you told me that i thought okay wait i need to look at this again because she's not profiting from this like she's actually giving back to these communities that have been harmed so i told you let me get your book out let me look at it and see what i think and maybe you would be a good guest but i need to dive into your book so i first opened it and lisa sharon harper writes the foreword which she was my last guest on the podcast. And I admire her so, so much. Like admire doesn't even seem like right. the adequate word for her. Incredible, so yes. I read that and I was like, okay, well, if she's writing the foreword, then there has to be something here. So diving into your story reading, I was like, wow, this is because you were born and raised in apartheid, South Africa. So you have a big story to tell. You have lived it and seen it and seen the damage as a white privileged woman to your soul. And that is what this book is about. It is about your own soul, someone that was supposed to be privileged and lifted up and benefit, but you did not flourish at all in this. And you just saw the crumbling of your own soul. So it is part memoir, part of your journey, dismantling and all the voices that you've learned from the black indigenous people of color. So it's not a white woman saying here, do this and you'll be great and healed from racism like me. And I want to read real quick. I told you I was going to do this because I think it's really important for listeners to hear Lisa Sharon Harper's words as endorsement from this book, because I know a lot of my listeners are on a similar journey as me that they're still like, but I don't know about a white woman writing about this. So I'm going to read her words. It's a rare thing for me to stand with a book explicitly about race and equity that's written by a white person. Why? Because it's a rare thing to encounter a white person who has followed the lead of people of color into their own transformation so deeply that I trust the message coming from their white body. Edelette McVicker has done the work. She has been a learner, a committed and embodied learner. In these pages, she talks of life as a, as a pilgrimage. Through her own decade-long embodied journey, she has developed a powerful voice. These stories and tears and screams of struggle of the very ones who saved her soul are the sources of her clarity and humility. She says apartheid's establishing generations saw her as the realization of their dreams. What they did not account for, she says, was I also needed a soul. And she goes on and on, and I encourage folks to read that, but... In a nutshell, if Lisa Sharon Harper endorses a book, an author, a woman, we're going to we're going to take a listen to that story. So let's go ahead and dive into your story. Can you share with my listeners your origin story, wherever you want to start, if that's with your parents, your great grandparents or just with your childhood? You know, I'm sitting here and I've got a little blankie and it's my, an Oma, my Oma knitted it. And I said, and I said, I didn't do these interviews, but I could feel my Oma was, you know, it's deeply complex. I am from the long line of white women and I, I did my DNA and all that stuff. Not that, you know, and I was like, no, no, yeah, I'm pretty white. <laughs> and even though I was raised and born in South Africa um, and I sit here holding the complexity of that where I had to wrestle with my Oma who had a picture of the founder or the architect of apartheid in her living room and also was somebody who embodied love to me and was somebody who prayed every night. And I, we shared a room sometimes when we would go away um, for a weekend and then she would be on the other side of the room and she would spend so much time praying. And you're like, uh, I don't know how to reconcile these things. And when people were talking about ancestors often, like I hear friends and um, especially um, um, 
indigenous communities talk about ancestors and and I would like ah, I don't know what to do with my ancestors because they were pretty racist and they were people who were I don't know trying to follow God and it was just really warped right so I come from this very complex context I was you know born and raised in South Africa I was really I worked it out it was right in the the middle right in the center of apartheid. Apartheid reigned for 46 years in South Africa. When I say reigned, right, like it's, it was established, it, was, it created the system that was um, oppressive. I'm just operating under the assumption that listeners know what apartheid is, but could you explain in a, in a yeah. really short nutshell what it is? Because there's some key points and factors about it that are just very eye-opening. I mean, we had it under another name in this country, but there's also some big differences here with, with South Africa. So if you wouldn't mind just diving into that a bit. So very similar to the Jim Crow laws in, in the U.S., but South Africa was it became a system and it had this name. It was a national party. So very nationalistic in its intent um, and rallied white Afrikaner people. So there's two groups of white people, too. That's also the other thing that's needs to be on. Two groups of white people in South Africa. Some speak Afrikaans, which is my mother tongue, which is similar to Dutch, but it's a Creole language. And it's like it, the, its actual origin story is also really powerful um, and has been a reclamation for me. Um, so Afrikaans and then the other um, the other group of white people in South Africa are, are English speaking. So sometimes you can have South Africans and they're like, oh, the accent is different, right? Um, okay, so apartheid was really created by the Afrikaans side of the white um, community with support from the English community. And it came into power in 1948. And it created a system of laws um, to separate people based on the color of our skin. And some of these racial categories didn't actually exist before apartheid came to be. And that's one of the things that's like, it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's mind-blowing. It's, yeah. it's mind-blowing, right? It should yeah. confound us. Um, and so, yeah, it created four uh, racial designations um, and had to put people into specific categories. I literally, when I was born, had a racial designation on my birth certificate and it said white. So a racial consciousness mm-hmm. was very much part of my growing up. And you right. were in a certain part of the hospital only? I was born baby. on the white side of the hospital. Yeah. And uh, when I, re- I have a very clear memory one day, Saturday morning, walking into the white side of the post office in our town. And, and also, as I talk about these things, I just want to make sure that if, if people are listening who are Black, Indigenous, or, or people of color, I know hearing these things from a white body can be so, must be so violent, right? And I, so I just want to make sure that they take care of themselves please i am very aware that i'm telling this story and so i'm hoping to speak my book it really is two white people right but my hope is that it's for a different world yeah thank you for saying that i actually had that in my notes so just as a caution yeah. like black bodies right. indigenous bodies yes. brown bodies listening to this yeah take care if you need to tune me out yeah. yeah this is yeah if you need to tune me out that's fine and and yeah because i yeah i just i know the violence of telling these stories Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and especially coming from a white body. And I here can I say, I, I know the violence. I, you know, I don't know the violence. I, right, right. I try and enter into it. Right. We enter into it with empathy or with compassion. But can I truly know it? No, I can't. Right. Right. Um, I've had, you know, so. Um, so what, yeah, going so back real quick, tell me if you don't mind, what year were you born? Because I want to put that in perspective yeah. with folks that you're saying, you know, born in the so white hospital. 1972. What? 1972. So, yeah. So apartheid was from 1948 to 1994. And so yeah. you're born into the system set up by some of you that your ancestors are thinking like is for you to benefit you. Right. Right. Um, so, so there was this whole nationalistic movement. So white people in South Africa are minority, right? Yes. So I think that's a big difference to um, compared to the U.S. story, right? Um, or the history of the U.S., let's say that. Um, so white minority who had been in power. So first Dutch colonization, then British col- British colonization. So that's why you have the, the two languages there too. Now we have 11 official languages. Um, so the Afrikaner community, when the British came in, it's also a pretty terrible story actually. Of um, and, and I touch on it and I, 
And again, I'm saying this, I don't want to center that story, right? But I think this was part of shaping the consciousness that created apartheid. Because the white Afrikaners during the Anglo-Boer War in its early 1900s, some of the women and children were put in concentration camps. And over 20,000 people starved and died in those concentration camps, right? And there was also black uh, black people who died and uh, were put in concentration camps and bodies of color. And so, you know, but that story is still, it's an, unf- like, that's a story that's very much in the consciousness and in embedded into the DNA, I think of pain, like Resma Menekin talks about our trauma, that our, col- our collective trauma that's embedded into bodies, right? And so I think this was embedded into the Afrikaner story. And and there was a consciousness that got shaped about, we will not let that happen again. We will not be, we, we won't face this kind of humiliation or oppression mm-hmm. um, again. And so became the oppressor. Yeah. You see yeah. The, how the oppressed become the oppressor, right? And some, you know, we, yeah. And became in used military might and power and violence to oppress others then to kind of rule at all costs right to make sure that their people now would not suffer and yet the suffering of millions and millions of other people and you know the the generational cost of that too right um yeah so that that was the story that kind of set up the 1948 elections and the National Party became, came into power and created apartheid. That was there for 46 years. And, and you so were that, yeah. born right in the middle of it. So 23 yeah. years of your life, you lived yeah. In, yeah. in that system that was supposed to benefit you, protect you, uplift you. Yeah. At what point did you realize, mm, maybe this isn't doing all that for me? I mean, I know a lot of these questions I'm asking you because you share in your book, but if you wouldn't mind sharing with listeners, just like, I mean, were you, uh, you know, walking into the post office with your dad and you noticed the black entry, the white, like, did you in your soul spirit know that something was wrong with that? Or you're like, oh, this is just how it is. I, as I've interrogated myself and gone back, I, I, I sensed that something was wrong. It felt off. Mm-hmm. Right. It didn't feel right, but I didn't have language or name. I couldn't name it. I was little, I was so little. Right. Um, But when I was 16 years old, so all through this time, so the media was controlled by the apartheid government, um, all of the language around apartheid, all communication around it, newspapers, uh, TV, everything, right? Um, Books, books were banned. Anything that criticized the apartheid government were banned. And so that kind of should send us some alarm bells. Ding, 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 right? Like, I'm just like, whoa, what's going on? What's going on? Um, And uh, so when I was 16 years old, so obviously a small minority government cannot sustain um, the amount of weapon, weaponry and military and economic power you need. Sanctions obviously did a a really good work as well, kind of over time um, to force the end of apartheid. But so things were starting to like, it was getting, it was getting tight for the apartheid government, right? So you can see, reflecting back, you can see that, right? Um, so they were starting to unban with with international pressure, unbanning things, and books were getting unbanned. And so I literally, um, I, I grew up reading, but because I was in this white bubble, like we literally were in a white bubble, lived in an all white neighborhood. I went to an all white school. Our, our church was all white. So I walked into the church and we talked about love your neighbor. Uh, the consciousness that was shaped was this is your white neighbor. Your neighbor is the white person, right? Like it was like, it was this very strange thing where your neighbor then was not like the person in a different community that lived um, literally only a few kilometers away, but wasn't your actual neighbor, right? So it's just the consciousness that was shaped, right? Um, and so living in that white bubble and um so kind of just went along with school and like life and being a teenager and that kind of stuff. Um, I don't talk about this, but there was, there was, um, I don't talk about this in the book, but you know, there's, there's things you have to kind of edit out in the end. Right. But I, I was part of a junior town council in our city again, was all white, but my friend and I, she was the mayor and I was the mayoress. We got to go to Johannesburg for this gathering of junior town councils in South Africa And 
they took us to meet the Junior Town Council of Sueto. So this was early night, like this was early, no, no, this was probably 87 or 88. Um, And I remember, so we were driving with this big bus and it was all like, people were kind of like, this is safe, it's like all of that stuff, driving into Soweto. And I remember seeing the Archbishop Desmond Tutu's house, they were pointing it out, uh, where Winnie Mandela was living and, you know, when they were in Soweto. And um, I just remember, and then we went to meet the Junior Town Council of Soweto and we were just hanging out and having tea and sandwiches or whatever and I remember we were just kind of like flirting with the, with, the, with the guys and it was like this weird like kind of thing we're like so normal and why isn't it normal why isn't this part of our everyday life yeah. and I think that also shaped me um, the other thing that happened was my dad was a German teacher and took us on a trip to Germany so he took the German German students to, to Germany and one of the things he did was take us to Dachau which is a concentration camp in Germany and remembering the Holocaust. And so I, that also profoundly impacted me because that day I asked this question, how can humans be so cruel? How can we be so inhumane? How can we do this to other human beings? And I hadn't really connected that we were doing this on a different in a different way in South Africa but when I went back to South Africa um, I walked into the library one day books were starting to get unbanned I walked up to this turnstile and it had its recently unbanned books and I walked up and I picked up a book and I'm like oh this feels, feels a little dangerous but it's in the <laughs> library I feel pretty safe in the library this is the context and I read the, took the book home and I read the book and that book really shattered the ideas and the consciousness and the formation that had shaped me until that moment. Mm. Um, It's this idea of who I was in the world and as an Afrikaner and all of a sudden reading a different perspective on apartheid and reading it from a black lens and um, a, a story of friendship between a black man and a white man. And, and I was like, Oh, because everything had been hierarchical, right? Mm-hmm. Hierarchical. And it just was like, yeah. And the way it connected in my spirit was like, this is how it's meant to be. And the things that didn't line up in my spirit, when I read this story, it felt, this is the truth. Mm-hmm. And it was like the truth stood up and it was mm-hmm. close. And it was, I needed to walk out into that. And there was this, it was like, the formation of my personhood had shattered and needed to go find. So what does it mean to be human in the world? Mm-hmm. I needed to go out and find that because I, and I was disillusioned with church and I was disillusioned with leadership because leadership had said, this is <laughs> leadership had created this. And I was disillusioned with school because school, again I thought you the whitewashed history yeah yes I you know all of this I you know I got an A in history for and what history did I learn yes so so many similarities with American history really stuff like you said before it's a minority rule setting up this system I'm curious if you if you could go back a little bit and touch on your faith because that's another similarity where the church in America was very not only complicit but lifted up and supported, you know, slavery, racism. And that's a similar story with you in South Africa and the church you were at. So how you're obviously a woman of faith. Did you just lose your faith, drop it? Did you go through just a long process of decolonization or how did you hold on to it? Yeah. You know, I grew up in the Dutch reformed church and they created the theology that supported apartheid really. Right. I mean, there was, there was dissenting voices, voices that were like, uh, this is not, this is not okay. And, you know, um, obviously there was the Archbishop Desmond Tutu was there, other voices, Alan Busak, um, that were just very critical of apartheid, but those were mostly like, like pushed, right. Mm -hmm. Really truly to the margins. Right. And so, uh, when I read that, I, I was so disillusioned. I I really loved my faith. When I left home at 18, I left my faith too. Okay, okay. Um, by that time, I was just done. Like Nelson Mandela had been released. 
in my final my in my grade 12 year and um and i just like the new a new government new democracy democracy was was being established so i was just like i'm done with this old way and and mm-hmm. faith seemed to be a part of that so i was deconstructing it about 16 17 18 right my first deconstruction and i guess decolonization too mm-hmm. um so yeah i went to university and just kind of um it was like this jesus yeah well you know it felt like a very particular brand like it was like you if you were it had to be very prim and proper it was very tight like i talk about the small and tight and white Mm. that's what faith felt like yes very constricted not free not liberating not expansive and and also yeah so yeah just so much this idea of rules that you have to follow and you know, very religious, right? And yet it was like, um, to be an Afrikaner meant to be a Christian, really. Okay, okay. Like it was deeply embedded in the consciousness of being an Afrikaner. Um, so I, when I went to Taiwan, I had left my faith. In fact, I remember not taking the Bible. And that, you know, like you got those little Gideon Bibles, I remember not even taking a Gideon Bible and that was a decisive moment. I was like, mm-hmm. I would be a hypocrite if I take this Bible. And I think it was probably, it was almost one of the best things I could have done in some way because I was just like, I just cleared this path and I wanted to be honest about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, do I, would I say I had a connectedness with this large expansive love and who I, I think, maybe it was God. I just didn't want that religion piece. Right. Um, And so I was looking for something spiritual when I was in Taiwan, for sure. And my life was starting to fall apart too. Like it was, it was, I was, I was not in a good place. Right. So um, ironically, my faith and I met like a Jesus there, but it wasn't the white Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's what I was going to say. You had to let white, you had to completely break up with white Jesus, let all that crumble down to find yeah yeah. i broke up with white jesus i sure did yes and i mean that story gives me a lot of hope and i hope other parents i mean i've been in a long process of deconstructing decolonizing after living in the bible belt of oklahoma for several years and so is my 19 year old and it's like i think sometimes it is part part of that process is abandoning abandoning the faith that you knew or that you were taught not the religion that you were taught you had to believe and uphold all of those things. Um, and then find your own way back to the broader, more expansive God and love and what that means. So I, I could really talk more about that for the next <laughs> 25 I know, minutes. Right? I have so many things I want to hit on. Um, but I just, I wanted to hear a glimpse of that part of your story, how you reconciled with that. And I'm guessing it was just a journey of coming back to what, what is this God? What is this faith? And what does love and all of this mean and embody? I would say it really had to do with a group of women. Okay. We're meeting around the breakfast table and we're, we're really embracing a different Jesus. Mm, Yeah. And it was um, powerful women, but women who, who, who owned their voices, who kind of yeah, it just it was a very different picture of Jesus that I saw in these women. Um, and just um, I don't know, I saw a glimpse of a very different faith and a different Jesus, and I was very attracted to that. So I would say there was, I'm so grateful mm-hmm. that there were these women around that table who were embracing a very different, a dangerous faith, right? Yeah. And then invited me in and invited me, and I was like, I was so hungry for that. So I showed up. I drove an hour on my scooter to be there at seven o'clock in the morning and people who know me know I am not a morning person. (laughs) I am a night owl. And I needed to be at those breakfast meetings. And I remember sitting down and these women would, they would, you know, they would bow their head. They wanted to bow their head, they bowed their head. If they didn't, they would close their eyes. Like it wasn't like, it was so beautiful. It was just like, whoever you want to be in the space, you know, you're welcome. And so I would like like, bow my head and I would like, look at these women. And I was like, Oh, my mom prays. And the funny thing was like, I felt like my mom's prayers kind of gave me this right to entry into the space because I didn't feel like I had any right to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm grateful for, th- I'm so grateful for that. And then once I was in that, like, it was almost like, it was just like, it was so quick almost like the, 
because I had this basis, like I had this very strong base of faith. I knew the stories and things, but when I started, I, I also had to go, so I went and bought myself a new Bible <laughs> in Taiwan, in Taipei, <laughs> and this tiny little red Bible, and it was called the Good News Bible, and I drove around in my with it in my backpack everywhere. And the difference for me too, at that time, it was an English Bible then, right? I was, so it helped me lose some of the, kind of the pain mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the construction of the original faith construction. Because when I was reading the English Bible, then it was, it didn't hold all of that kind of that, that um, energy and the, like that was locked into the language as well. Right. Afrikaans, the language and our, and our language in the Bible is very hierarchical. Okay. Okay. There is, I don't know, um, for those who know German or some of the other um, languages, like it, it, it's built, it's like this, when you talk to God, it's like you do talk always to this very, like this authority. Mm-hmm. It's like a higher up, right? It's like, it's like the thee and thou of it all. And so, the language felt very it's not intimate yeah very patriarchal really i mean i can felt patriarchal yes and i think it was embedded into the language right Mm -hmm. like the spirit Mm -hmm. of the time right so um reading it in english at that time was very was like very freeing for me you know and i've gone back and i'm reclaiming the afrikaans of it all but there's work that has to be done but um and there's yeah, there's indigenous writers that are writing psalms in Afrikaans, and I'm like, it's just stunning and healing. But yeah, there's lots of work to be done. But no, yeah, so I, that, you know. Okay. That, no, I appreciate that. And that's reminding me again how important it is my own journey, yours too, learning from Black and Indigenous and people of color, their voices and their stories. And that changes everything, that lens, because. Mm-hmm. So much of my life was spent listening and learning from white voices, white male voices. And when you start opening up that, it changes everything. So I want to talk about, I'm looking at my notes. What what do I want to touch on? But I want to kind of get get back to your book, Recovering Races, the title. And you talk about in your book that you spent, so you have this realization, what you grew up in was, you know, damaging to you as well and not right. Right. But you say you spent so much of your life trying to just prove that you weren't a racist, really. Like that was your like, okay, fine. I've grown up in this, but I am not a racist. So (laughs) tell me a little bit about that part of your journey and the realization that, wait, maybe I actually am a racist and this is part of the recovery. Yeah, so it's a long, it was a long walk for me. So when I was 16, left kind of and awakened for the first time, um, I really thought, okay, well, I, I would speak up at, you know, at barbecues or I would, I would not tolerate racist conversations or when people were having any kind of slurs or anything like, I, so I, you know, I thought, oh yeah, I, I was for democracy. I voted in the first democratic elections in South Africa, which was profound. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we voted in democracy and, and so I thought I was, you know, kind of on this progressive side of being a South African. So when I, you know, that's just kind of how I was in the world. And when I went to Taiwan, there was this other thing that happened. I realized that I was not, that when people saw me and heard my accent, they would know in this international context that I was an Afrikaner person, that I'm an Afrikaner woman, and that I was on the wrong side of history. Mm. And I was like, oh, and that hit me like, that was a warm wash of shame. Mm-hmm. And that that really compelled me to go and find what is it that I need to, how do I belong in this world? Like, how do I even have a right to belong in this world? Mm-hmm. I still wouldn't have said I was racist, but I but I was on this journey to figure out like, what does it mean to be an Afrikaner in the world? Like, what does it mean to be Afrikaans speaking, to have been to a white South African, to be in the world? What is my, what is my story? What is God asking me to do? Right. And I think that was a compelling, like, God, what am I supposed to do with this story? And so that was my quest, really. So it was my faith and my story that compelled me you know, um, to go and figure out what is, what is, what does it look like to walk in freedom? Like I'd seen political freedom come to South Africa. Mm -hmm. There's so many other freedoms that still need to come, but I seen, I'd seen political freedom come and there, the taste of that was so profound that it, 
I knew that that's something. I knew on a spiritual level that that's also what I wanted because it, you could feel it when, when justice comes, there's also peace mm. in the air, right? On that day, it was there. And it was, it was, it was, this, it was a political moment. It was a, but it was also a spiritual moment. And so that I was, I was, I was looking for that in my own life, in my own inner life. Right. And I felt really stuck. And so I would, I was looking for people having this conversation and I was not finding white people having this conversation. I, I was, I was seeing people having political conversations, but not spiritual conversations, not in South Africa. And in the U S um, there were some, but again, it was political. It was, it didn't feel like spiritual conversations. I was looking for, for resources, for books, for voices, just for information, for freedom. And um, a friend said, you have to read no, no future without forgiveness by Desmond Tutu. And so I picked up that book and that was this, this, again, there was like this line by line. I would almost have to like reshape my consciousness. Like when I would bump up against the word, just like something had to shift. Things were shifting inside my body, inside my spirit, just holding up this, this truth, but also the generosity of the spirit with which he wrote it. He was writing words, but he was also holding space with his words. There was a spirit embedded into the words that was the spirit of grace and generosity and Ubuntu. And so I was always looking for black voices then to help me, to guide me, because they were the only ones I could find, to be honest with you. And then indigenous women, indigenous voices were, were, were ones that were speaking things. I was like, I, that, that's freedom. I can hear that. Right. And so I would just, that's just where I would go. Right. And so after this, like doing the work, still trying to be like, um, and you can read it through the chapters. I didn't realize how much energy I was trying to spend, trying to kind of prove that I was a good white woman, mm-hmm. not a racist white woman, until I sat at the Festival of Faith and Writing and the Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas, um, she wrote Stand, Stand Your Ground, it's one of the books that she wrote. Um, And she was speaking and she was standing at the podium and she said, and she quoted a friend, she said, the only thing white people can be are recovering racists. So this was a black woman saying this to a room. And when she said that, it was like truth. My body was like, oh, it was, it was like many things happening at the same time. But the one was like, oh, crap, (laughs) thud, like crash, like, ugh. Right. And the other thing was like, yes, this is truth. This is liberation. This, I need to sit with this. And so because a black woman was saying this, I was like, okay, I can walk. I'm going to, I'm going to go walk with this. And so then I started hearing it from other spaces as well. She wasn't the only one. And so I felt like this confirmation. It was like, okay. And also what was happening in my spirit. It was like, this feels like this is truth. This connects and truth sets free. Yes. And so that's where that comes from. It's not because I said I am this, but it's because somebody else, because the Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas said that. And I was like, uh, okay. And it felt like this, um, yeah, this, like you come to the end of whiteness, right? Like, and once I did that, it was like, okay, I don't have to prove mm-hmm. how not racist I am. Let's spend this energy working on repair working on restitution, making things right, whatever I as an individual can do, right? Or where I can take hands and be part of the collective. We don't have to do this alone, right? So, yeah. And did that help you? I mean, I think a a similar story for so many of us on this journey is that shame component. That once we know the history, we know what our ancestors have done, there's a lot of shame. And it sounds like that was part of your journey too, but this was kind of a releasing of it or a, a freedom to like, okay, yeah, acknowledge it now. Now, what do you do? And right. what do you do to get past that? Um, uh, is that absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think coming out of shame was a long journey. I think um, I, and I, and I, and I grappled with that because it's, it's nuanced and it's complex because we, I acknowledge the shame. The shame was big for me. Right. But we can't, we can't stay in the shame. And that can be the thing that becomes the center of the story right and so we as white women can talk about this right 
again, this is the side conversation, but I, I just want to position it in, as that, as, that mm-hmm. as well, right? Um, but we have to deal with the shame. Um, I think for me, one of the clarifying things was to move it to guilt, right? Yeah. And then guilt reminds you that something is wrong. And I've learned some of this language from from the pe- from people who have done deep work around abuse, right? Because mm-hmm. um, that's part of the that's part of the story that shaped shaped us too, right? A violence against women. But um, so move it to guilt, and what when you can when, guilt tells us something's wrong. Yeah, that's why we're feeling this. This yeah. is wrong. Racism yeah. is wrong. Yeah. The things we have done, the laws that we have laid on the land is wrong. What we have embedded into the spirit of the land is wrong, right? So there's there's things that need to be untied. And so um, move it to guilt and then guilt says, okay, what is my responsibility then? What do I need to do to make mm-hmm. it right? Mm-hmm. Not to go and lie in a little pot, in a little bundle and stop, but say now work for repair, work for restitution, work for liberation in community, right? And and make right. And 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 ask where does your story intersect with the story of racism? Where's inter-racism intersect in your family story, your community story, in the in this in the the town where you live. And going back to what you said, like shame is is part of the process. It's not something you just overlook. And that's what your book does an incredible job with is, you know, it's like kind of 20 stages. I mean, we've heard of the 12 step program for recovering, but you have these, these stages of going through, not just overlooking and not acknowledging, not feeling shame, but moving forward in that. One of the stages that you talk about, um, that I want to just touch briefly on. There's so many I could, that's what people just need to get your book and know again that the proceeds go to benefit these communities that have been harmed. But this one just touched a nerve with me because I've seen it, I've done it, the repentance part. And so often white people, white women, I've done it, you admitted to doing it. We just go right and we apologize to a, a black person like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry what this country has done or what it, and that is not okay. Yeah. Um, you admit that in the book and you had a, a woman confront you and tell you that. And I think that needs to be heard. It seems like a small, simple thing, but touch on that a little bit about the whole repentance. Cause I think that's an early kind of step in this as well. And an right. area that we can really right. mess up in. Right. Yeah. Repentance is huge in the story, but I think we really have to um, distinguish between individual repentance and collective repentance. And so if you as an individual have harmed somebody, you need to, to that individual, make the repair, right? If you have literally, like, I don't know, if you'd said something racist to somebody, go back to that person, make it right. Ask, how may I restore you? Yeah. And, and, and do the work, right? Um, or if you, like, so if you've done some of that stuff on an individual level, absolutely do the work. But a lot of this, or the people who come to this conversation are the ones who are, who are acknowledging the communal harm that we have done. And so sometimes what we do is we want to go to an individual and repent for the communal harm. And we can't do that because Austin Channing Brown also talks about that. We want to make the black person our priest where we're confessing our sins. And that is harming. And that is, again, like just we're perpetuating the violence, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, the communal repentance has happened in my, has happened in my closet, right? Like it's happened on, in, my, in my office where God and I would talk about the laws. We would talk about that door at the post office and we would talk about the racial designations. We would talk about the big laws and we would talk about those laws, the small things too, right? No, and not that they're small, the communal laws and the individual things, right? Yes. And so I think that's the difference. And I think when communities, there's beautiful things like, I mean, um, the the um, Equal Justice Institute is doing community repair work. Right. Right, where there has been racial terror lynchings in communities, where you can see, has there been one? Has there been a collection of the, they collect soil, right? Because there's something about the land that tells the stories. There's an art, 
I think an art contest, right? Like they write poetry or do art. And there's all these ways that the community has to gather and do repair work before they can place kind of the monument, the piece in the, in the community to say that they have done the work and they acknowledge the harm that has been done through racial terror lynching, right? Um, so there's those communal works. I've seen churches do some of that. But again, I think that has to be done so carefully in relationship. And you and go into say, it. And your book does a tremendous job. You go into that a lot with some of your own story, what yeah. other uh, Black and Indigenous writers yeah. recommend. And, oh, we have just a few minutes left here. Is there anything that, oh gosh, that's a too big of a question. Is there anything we didn't touch on in your book? But gosh, we didn't touch on a lot. So I can't even ask yeah. you that. I just, I do want to just, just thank you for pouring yourself into this book. And I think it's, it needs to be mentioned too. This book was not like, oh, you just decided last year in 2020 to write. This was a 30 years in the making of your story and history and journey. This was not a year long journey or something that you woke up to in 2020. This is a lifelong, you've been in this, doing this work for a long, long time. And with that said, you are still a recovering racist. Yes. Like that woman, you will, we will, you will always be. And I think that's something really hard. So I think that that's a really important point too, with your book and your story is that this is all a long process and we will be in recovery as white women, white people for the rest of our journeys on this earth. I think um, so. I mean, yeah. 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 So in the few minutes left, I want to talk about, because you, you have done some incredible stuff with your life here. Besides this book, you have a, she loves media society and the dangerous women community. So can you just tell us a little bit about both of those and where listeners can connect with you in those areas? Yeah. So she loves, we're a community of, of writers, but it's shifted so much. I think right now, Leah Abraham is our editor in chief. So we've shifted um, and we have, we've launched a podcast as well. It's called Liberating Faith. And so we have different voices because again, you're like, we're trying to shift out of those like one person leader thing. Like we're, mm-hmm. I was like, I got it. I can't be the white woman at the front of this. Like this, this doesn't work. Right. And because we're trying to be this global sisterhood and we're reconstructing faith, dismantling oppression, decolonizing faith. Uh, we're in, we're an affirming faith and a feminist faith. So it's like, it's like a progressive space, but I also, to be honest with you, I like, I'm also, I'm really leery of this deep divide right? Between progressive and conservative. And I, one of the chapters in the book is called about is honor everyone. That piece for me is, and I think I see this such a deep divide in the U.S. and that's happening. It's spilling over. It's in Canada too, right? Um, That deep divide. And the compelling for me is how do we walk to the other? And often my other now, for me, my other is in South Africa is like a racist white person that I need to walk towards and kind of how can I see their humanity? Not their actions, not condoning their actions, but their. But how do we not just cancel and dismiss mm-hmm. and walk away and create these silos, right? So we're trying to do that with with she loves, um, and also have different perspectives. Like it's unfolding. We're unfolding now. We've shifted. Like blogging has changed. All of that stuff's changed. So we've been shifting, right? And just trying to figure out who are we and doing this in a community, right? Um, Dangerous Women Community is, a, is our membership piece, and that's where we believe that love is a subversive power. And how can we, as as women, as people, um, embrace love as a subversive power and move towards the other, uh, be in this be in this world? How does it, what does it mean to deconstruct our faith together? Like so, we're doing this work. It's unfolding, right? But we're 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 doing that work. Um, yeah, so it's, you know, yeah, it's mostly, it's just unfolding, right? Right. I mean, isn't all of the same, yeah. all of these, I mean, if you want to stay with what is actually going on in the world, it has to keep unfolding to the times. Yeah. And we will put links to all of that in the show notes where folks can learn more, get connected with you. The dangerous woman is what I want to end on, because like you said, that's the community that you have. And it was a Walter Brueggemann piece, I think I read that inspired mm-hmm. that. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, a sermon, a sermon by Walter Brueggemann. Yeah. Okay. And you decided, you know what? We, I'm going to create. We're going to create a group of dangerous women. And you have, would you call it a poem or a declaration that you have that kind yeah. of started De- it? Call I, it a declaration. It's a poem. Yeah, it's it's very it's powerful. And I think something that hearing you read would be even more powerful. So I ask if you would 
end on this note of reading what you wrote, your declaration for dangerous women. I am a dangerous woman. I'm here and I'm awake. I pay attention to the rumblings in my soul. I listen and watch for how the spirit leads. With each humble choice, I take a step closer to my destiny. With each strong yes, I become more of myself. I am a dangerous woman. I draw deeply from the life that beats in my blood. I have a place in the story of God, large or small. My capacity is mine, and I will move in it to make change in my world. I am a dangerous woman. I have a voice that needs to be heard. No need to rage or raise a fist. My love will speak. My arguments are strong. My life is a protest towards great love. I am a dangerous woman. I may start with tiny steps, and my ankles may roll with the weight of the task, but I am determined. I refuse to let fear hold me back. I choose love. I am a dangerous woman. My ducks may never be quite in a row. The laundry may never be done. I may never feel strong enough, capable enough, or smart enough. I will do it anyway. Shall we go together? I am a dangerous woman. I embrace small beginnings and I show up in small pockets of love, but I don't think small. I step over the obstacles that tell me I should quit. And so I start. I am dangerous. I am a dangerous woman. I am tired of spending my choices on myself. I will let my privilege and my power speak for good, aligned with the purposes of the Almighty. My strength roars. I am a dangerous woman. I am part of a vast network. I recognize how we are all connected. My choices affect a world of people, plants, and animals. What a big responsibility, you may say. But oh, what a great adventure. I am a dangerous woman. I refuse to do nothing. I choose to listen to the gladness of my soul and the hungers in our world. And where these meet, I will plant a garden. I am a dangerous woman. I refuse to let shame hide me. I refuse to let old boundaries hold me back. I refuse to let what's always been done create the future. I refuse to be silent about the things that matter. I refuse to be afraid. Who do you think you are? You may ask. So I will tell you. I am a dangerous woman, loved by God, empowered by God. I'm a dangerous woman, devoted to a dangerous God. I am a dangerous woman, and I will beat my drum as we dance in the land of freedom and promise together. Thank you just for coming on and giving me this hour of your time to share your story. I just so appreciate your voice and just the example that you're setting. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me and for the work that you do in the world. Mm-hmm.